Hi, my name is Nelson Bennett, and this is the Merovingian Podcast. Last week, we covered the changes to the realm over the six decades of Merovingian rule, and how they resulted in the three sons of Ingund defeating their half-brother, Chilperic. Now that the kingdom has been divided in four once again, we're going to see how the four new kings rule in episode 12, The New Generation. We're going to divide this episode in two once again. First, we're going to talk again about the Merovingians and their penchant for the ladies. Charibert and Guntram may be the less active and dramatic kings, but even they can't help but stir controversy when it comes to women. After that, we're going to discuss yet another civil war, as Sigebert goes off to defend the realm, and Chilperic tries to squeeze him out as soon as his back is turned. Classic Chilperic. Now, while we're going to get to the torrid affairs of the Merovingian courts, I first want to take the time to talk about Gregory and his attitude towards women. Remember, the vast majority of information we get about these people is from his work, so understanding how he thinks about things helps us spot and adjust for his personal biases. And boy, does he have a lot of personal biases. Gregory's attitude towards women, like so many of his attitudes, defies easy categorization. I wish I could just say, well, he's a conservative clergyman, so generally he's against women in the public sphere. But the truth is a bit more complicated. Gregory seems to have no specific dislike of powerful women. This is perhaps less surprising when we remember he owes his position to powerful women, specifically Brunhild and Radegund. In addition, his own mother, Armentaria, was a significant aristocrat and landowner who had a profound influence over Gregory's life. Francia, in this period, is actually an outlier, not only because of its number of powerful queens, but also for its unusually high number of female saints. All of these factors seem to have influenced Gregory's opinions, and he is openly supportive of several powerful women in his writings. But, before we start labelling him a closet feminist and talking about how Merovingian Gaul was secretly woke, I must point out that Gregory also had his issues with women. Specifically, I'd like to talk about two of his big issues today. First, Gregory had an obsession with virtue, not that strange for a priest, but he applied it in an odd way when it came to aristocratic women. Historian Aaron Daly describes this well, quote, Gregory of Tours believed that the death of the husband, however unfortunate, provided a woman with an opportunity to abandon worldly concerns and devote herself fully to spiritual pursuits. End quote. To put it simply, Gregory expected widows to realize their time and power was over and retire peacefully to a convent. This moral test, as Daly calls it, will come up in several places in Gregory's work, though it is worth noting that he does not apply it evenly. For example, when Fredegund continues to rule as regent after her husband's death, Gregory attacks her viciously for it. But when his ally Brunhild does the same, she almost entirely escapes criticism. 
He also has no problem with Clothild getting involved in politics after Clovis's death, because she is just too significant and beloved for him to dare criticise her. The second issue Gregory has is rooted in the prejudices of his time. Of course, there was a general sense in this period that women were less capable than men. We will later see a vivid example of this when Gregory describes Brunhild facing down two of her aristocratic enemies, quote, with a vigour that would have become a man, end quote. But beyond the general misogyny of the time, there was also a specific prejudice Gregory had inherited. Being a well-educated Gallo-Roman meant being well-versed in the classics of Roman literature and history, and Roman authors had a specific hang-up about stepmothers. Roman authors, especially in the imperial period, had a general distrust of women who moved into existing households. Sometimes it was justified, like with Nero's mother plotting to put her son on the imperial throne. Often, it was not. Augustus's wife, Livia, for example, has been accused of various plots and murders for nearly two millennia with practically no evidence. Either way, the Roman authors did not like a stepmother. Being from a time that looked back on the Roman period with nostalgia, and a class that put a premium on its Roman ties, Gregory would have been greatly influenced by these perspectives, and they will come up again and again in his work. Now, enough about Gregory, let's get into the scandalous Merovingian courts. Right off the bat, we get a story from the court of Guntram, which invokes the evil stepmother trope. Guntram had a son named Gundabad, with a mistress named Venveranda, who was a servant. His mother's lowly birth was no problem for Gundabad, however, as the Merovingians had no firm concept of illegitimate children. If a king claimed the child, well, that child was entitled to the same respect as any other. Later, Guntram married a woman named Marcatrude, who had a son of her own. In classic evil stepmother fashion, she immediately set to plotting against Gundabad to strengthen the position of her own son. She poisoned him, leading to his death, but was punished by God with her own son's death and was put aside by Guntram and then died soon after. It is almost too easy to see the Roman influences in this story. Nevertheless, it is interesting for a few reasons. First, it is the first time we see poison and assassination being effectively used, though it certainly won't be the last. Second, we see again how Gregory twists narratives to protect his allies. Guntram will later be an important political ally of Gregory, and the bishop seems to have held him in some personal respect. This story stinks of hidden details and missing information, which makes more sense when you know Gregory's bias. How did Guntram know it was Marcatrude who killed his son? Pretty convenient that God happened to punish her by killing her own son too, isn't it? She also conveniently dies soon after, neatly tying up all loose ends so Guntram can remarry and have new heirs with a clean conscience. Hmm, most convenient. Next up is a story about the wives of Charibird, and this one is not only scandalous, but also reveals a bit more about Merovingian attitudes towards class. 
Charibert was married to a woman named Ingeberg. They had a daughter who, interestingly, married Ethelbert, Anglo-Saxon king of Kent. This is interesting because it was one of the few pieces of evidence about contact between the courts of Britain and Francia, and because Ethelbert would later become overlord of Britain, a position known as Bretwalda. Anyway, Ingeberg had two servants, sisters, named Marco Vefa and Merifled. These young women soon caught the attention of Charibert because, of course, they did, and he, quote, fell violently in love with the two of them. How romantic. Ingeberg, seeing that her maids had caught her husband's attention, and knowing her lack of a male heir put her in a vulnerable position, concocted a plan to fix this situation. See, Marco Vefa and Merifled were the daughters of a wool worker, and Ingeberg seems to have thought that once Charibert was confronted by the reality of their low birth, he would snap out of it and return to her. This is interesting because it reveals a couple of things about the Merovingian period. There seems to have been some sense of class. Ingeberg's actions reveal her aristocratic disdain for these lower class women, and her plan relied upon her husband sharing her prejudice. Unfortunately for her, he did not. When she lured the king into seeing the father preparing wool for the royal household, Charibert instead became enraged at her trickery and dismissed her, marrying Merifled instead. This is just one example of Merovingian kings having absolutely no care about where their wives came from. Sometimes they were aristocrats, sometimes royalty, but just as often they were commoners. This is reinforced when Gregory continues with the story, telling us that Charibert, quote, had another woman as well, despite his apparent love for the two sisters. Theudachild, the other woman, was the daughter of a shepherd who had looked after the king's flocks. These examples show that Charibert, the oldest living Merovingian, had no sense of shame in marrying and bearing children with low-class women. In fact, it seems to have been his thing. Now, if you think that this story is over, I have some good news for you. There's more to come, and it's about to get even weirder. See, Gregory tells us that Marco Vefa, quote, wore the habits of a religious. This doesn't mean that she was part of the church or a convent. It probably just means that she had taken certain vows and decided to devote herself to living a spiritually pure life. This was a type of religious exercise that existed apart from the church and was fairly common in this period, especially amongst young women. Almost certainly, Marco Vefa had taken some form of vow of chastity or virtue which would prevent sexual intercourse, which is likely why Charibert married her sister instead of her. Unfortunately for her vow, Charibert does not seem to have been a man possessing a large amount of self-restraint. He decided enough was enough. One sister would not satisfy him, he needed both, and he married Marco Vefa as well. This was a step too far though, and they were both excommunicated and barred from the church by a local bishop named Germanus. Charibert refused to give her up, but unfortunately she died soon after their marriage. Charibert himself died not long after in 567, 
having reigned for six years. Gregory takes the time to tell us that for the sin of having a king marry her, Mark of Ephe was, quote, struck by the judgment of God. Does he say the same about the king that violated a young woman's vows? You bet he doesn't. Anyway, the story of Charibert has one last twist. Remember, the proximity to the person of a king was what gave a queen power. They could work to consolidate that power, but they still needed a king there. Theudachild, the shepherd's daughter, decided she wasn't going to go peacefully into obscurity, and decided to take bold action. She wrote to Guntram, offering to marry him. I'm going to read what happened next straight from the text that Gregory gives us, because it is particularly nasty. The king replied in these terms, She may come to me and bring her treasure with her. I will receive her, and I will give her an honourable place among my people. She will hold a higher position at my side than she ever did with my brother, who has died recently. Theudachild was delighted when she heard this. She collected all her possessions together and set out to join Guntram. When he saw her, Guntram said, It is better that this treasure should fall into my hands than that it should remain in the control of this woman who was most unworthy of my brother's bed. He seized most of her goods, left her a small portion, and packed her off to a nunnery at Arles. Now, as modern observers, we might be a little shocked at Theudachild's offer to marry her brother-in-law, but understand her desperation to avoid being dismissed. In that light, Guntram's actions in lying to her, then robbing her, are callous and greedy. By her possessions, Gregory is almost definitely talking about whatever part of Charibert's treasure she could get her hands on, which would have been the sweetener on her offer of marriage. When we get down to it, it is obvious that Guntram only wanted the treasure and was simply playing with the young queen. But Gregory definitely does not agree with us. Remember, her husband had just died. She was facing a moral test and it was her duty to retire to a religious life. When Theudachild decides instead to make a move to preserve her position, she is rightly punished by good King Guntram, who even kindly helps her on her way by imprisoning her in a convent. To reinforce that Guntram was right to do this, Gregory goes on to tell us that she hated living in the convent, and secretly arranged to escape and marry a certain goth, in Spain, with what was left of her fortune. Unfortunately for her, the abbess caught her as she tried to escape. She was, quote, beaten mercilessly and locked up in her cell. There she remained until her dying day, suffering awful anguish, end quote. The additional detail that it was a goth who she was planning to marry is a dead giveaway that Gregory thinks This is a slimy and immoral plan. Gregory expects us as readers to think Theudachild's punishment was just and right, which should act as a quick reminder that his perspective differs hugely from our own. Well, that was upsetting, Nelson. Why don't we get back to some good old-fashioned civil war? Well, if you insist, dear listener, 
let's talk about what Sigurbert and Chilperic had been up to this whole time. If you remember back to last week, Sigurbert had taken Theuderic's old seat of Hrem for himself. It gave him the best access to the northeastern border, where much of the conflict in the realm was at this time, and he got to keep an eye on Chilperic in nearby Soissons. Unfortunately, Sigurbert might have been a good warrior, but he doesn't seem to have been particularly astute otherwise. Only a year after the death of Clothar, the realm was attacked, and it was left to Sigurbert to go deal with the invaders. This, once again, shows that he seems to have been the only eager military man amongst the kings, but it also implies that he might have been moving into a more senior position amongst them. The prestige of being the one king defending the realm would have been significant. On top of this, it was exactly these kind of actions that Clothar had taken, especially towards the end when he had been consolidating his hold on the kingdom. Gregory records the invaders as being Huns, but the period of Hunnic conquest was well and truly over. Much more likely, the invaders were Avars, a new steppe confederacy that had migrated into the Pannonian Basin and were ravaging Europe. They were horse nomads from the east, and it would be far too much to expect Gregory to be able to tell the difference between them and the Hunnic raiders that had terrorised Rome in all the histories he had read. Anyway, Sigbert marched out and apparently defeated the raiders, and their king reached out and made overtures of friendship. This could be true, though Gregory's heavy pro-Sigbert bias must be noted. But, either way, it was not important, as Sigbert had other problems. You see, placing himself so close to Chilperic might have allowed him to keep an eye on his half-brother when he was around Hrem. But as soon as he marched off to deal with the Avars, Chilperic had launched an attack. He apparently took several cities Sigurbert controlled, and seems to have tried to take Hrem itself. Chilperic was likely hoping the Avars would keep his brother occupied for longer, or deplete his forces, or even better, just kill him. But Sigurbert raced back from campaign, upending Chilperic's plans once again. Now, most people would expect Sigurbert to move to save Hrem from Chilperic's forces, or try to retake some of the cities he had lost. Instead, moving straight for the jugular, Sigurbert attacked and took Chilperic's own capital of Soissons. There, he captured Chilperic's son and heir, Theudebert, who he imprisoned for a year and made him swear an oath to never fight against him again. He probably also captured at least part of Chilperic's treasury. The capture of his capital no doubt came as a shock to Chilperic, because he took his forces and immediately marched to confront Sigurbert. In the ensuing battle, Sigurbert defeated Chilperic, proving again who the superior warrior was, and while his half-brother scrambled to recover, Sigurbert retook all that Chilperic had seized while he was on campaign. Now, you might be asking yourself, well, Sigurbert has Chilperic on the run, he has his son and heir, and he has his capital city of Soissons, why not keep going and boot him out of the kingdom entirely? 
Well, that is a good question, but one for which Gregory does not give an answer. You see, Gregory's choice of focus is often frustrating, as he skims over important political or military details to record everyday gossip, stories with clear morals, or details about the lives of bishops. Still, there are some assumptions we can make. Remember, the compromise splitting up the kingdom is only a couple of years old at this point. Charibert is still alive and sleeping around, and none of the kings really trust each other all that much. If Sigebert were to kick Chilperic completely out, he would establish dominance over the northeastern lands and would become a bit too powerful for comfort. Also, deposing a Merovingian king, even their slimy half-brother, was likely a line Guntram and Charibert would not have liked to see crossed. Whether Guntram and Charibert put pressure on him, or he decided to play it safe and not antagonise them, Sigebert seems to have allowed Chilperic to retain most of his lands after this war. This kept him in a slightly dangerous position, but with the prestige he had gained from fighting off the Avars and defeating Chilperic, Sigebert might have been happy with the progress he had made. This fragile peace wouldn't last long, however, as two events in 567 would shake up the situation in Francia. First is the death of Charibert. Second is the arrival of Brunhild and her sister Galswinth from the Visigothic court in Spain. Both will have profound consequences for the realm. As I'm sure you can tell, this new generation of Merovingian kings are not that different from their predecessors. They still lie, cheat, steal, and war with the best of them. Merovingian rule might be slowly becoming more settled, but the kings are still quintessentially Merovingian, that is to say, wild, lusty, greedy, and ambitious. Next week, we're going to properly meet two of my favourite characters from the period. Brunhild will arrive in splendour and marry the noble king Sigebert. Fredegund will emerge from the shadows and plot against Chilperic's other wife, looking to gain control. Or, at least, that is how Gregory tells it. We're going to cover the dramatic and tragic events that led to the rivalry between these two women and their families, which will hang like a shroud over the next few decades of Merovingian politics. It's going to be a good one. See you then.